And now I promised you that parallel passage. It happens to be a little less familiar because we usually resort to the Luke or the Matthew parallel, but now we're looking at Luke 6, 46 to 49. Both of these are passages that ought to bring us sober reflection about our faith. Hear the word of God. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation where the river burst against it. Immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. And looking at this passage, you can pick out the outline from your insert in the bulletin, which reads, Are you sure you are a Christian from this passage and the parallel in Matthew? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you taking your name upon our lips with a great hope and prayer we might be sincere in our calling upon you. Deliver us from insincerity, from foolishness, from fakery, from fooling ourselves. Help us to examine ourselves, as Paul tells us we should, to see whether we be in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you are a Christian, or consider yourself to be one, these are really scary words. Do not just say, Lord, Lord. Now, you need to say, Lord, Lord, sincerely. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Saying Lord is important, but believing in your heart is more important. And Jesus reminds us of that fact here and elsewhere. But he gives a most scary warning. He says, on the day of judgment, if someone just says Lord, Lord, but hasn't believed in him as Lord and Savior, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. How scary is that? Now, warnings are meant to wake us up. Wait a minute. Could that happen? Theoretically, I hope it doesn't. But could that happen? It will happen to some people. And Jesus warns us of this passage. This is a passage of what we call self-examination. We need to, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 13, sorry, verse 5, examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith, to see whether or not the foundation that we have laid indeed is found in Jesus Christ. Now there's a temptation here to say, well, I know who might be faking it. So-and-so over there, man, I just don't know. 
about him. Now, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be thinking about someone else. In fact, Jesus clearly tells us the one you're to be thinking about. He tells us to think about yourself, as he says in this passage very clearly. We find that Jesus says, you should not just say, or why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not tell, do what I tell you to do. So this is about you, and I mean you individually. Each one of you should ask this question, am I sure am I, that I am a Christian? And it's not for you to use as a club on somebody else. In fact, as I tell you to do this, I must do it myself and ask myself that same question because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is truly part of the kingdom of God. We have to beware of deceiving ourselves. Maybe you are five feet ten, but you think you are seven feet tall. It's not true. You are what you are. You have to face up to whatever that is. And you say, this is what I am. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. But it's especially true if you are a believer. It is by the grace of God that you are what you are. But we are given some tests, some things to think about in order to understand whether or not we are sincere in our faith. And the first test of our obedience is, of course, that profession of faith, which is important. I mentioned the passage from Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, a a public confession of faith is expected of all true Christians. We cannot be, this is an old reference now, Lone Ranger Christians. The Lone Ranger had a mask on, and he rode into town on his faithful horse, and when he was done beating up the bad guys, he went out of town, and everybody went, Who was that masked man? Some of you know about it, others of you don't. We cannot be masked Christians. Sometimes people come to church for a while and they disappear. And you say, I wonder what ever happened to so-and-so. Or I wonder if they were really a Christian, if they were once among us and they left us. And John says, they left us since they prove in that way that they were not really of us. It's a scary thing. But it is important to make that confession anyway. There are no closet Christians. We are to be out in, as Christians openly. Now, in some cultures, it's very hard to be a Christian. We visited in Japan some years ago, and there are some Christians who were confessing their faith and were baptized. There was a lady in the, one of the churches that we visited that was 80 years old, and she was waiting till she was 85 or so to finally be baptized. And that's because if she were baptized, her family would look down upon her. How can you betray your people or your family by declaring that you are a Christian? Now, I'm not saying that she wasn't, but she should have confessed her faith, even though we know that was hard for her. It's not all that hard for any of us, but in many countries, to be baptized as a Christian is a very dangerous thing. In Muslim cultures, if you become a Christian, you're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous thing that can happen to you. So it is assumed that you confess with your mouth. In fact, 
1 John 4 says, If anyone confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So it's important to say it. It's important to tell people that you are a Christian. But the question is, why do you say that, if you do? On that day, there will be a necessity for Christ to recognize you, to see you as what you really are, someone who confessed with your mouth, but also believed in your heart and showed it in your life that you are a Christian. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, now, or even who say, Lord, Lord, at the judgment, will be accepted. And then we find out that there are some people who did amazing things. And they will say, as the passage in Matthew said, did we not cast out demons in your name? It's often interesting to note that some of those who said they were believers in Jesus' day were not. Take, for example, the apostles. Who was not a believer? Well, it was Judas, who later on betrayed the Lord Jesus, and his heart was far from God. But did you remember that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, and they performed miracles, and they came back and they said, we can't believe it. We cast out demons in your name. In other words, Judas was among those who went out two by two and did these kinds of miracles in the name of the Lord Jesus. It was the name of Jesus in which they did these things, even though in this case Judas was not even a believer. There were Jews in Acts 19 that went around driving out evil spirits, or tried to, although some of those evil spirits didn't really believe them. We know Christ, we know Paul, but who in the world are you guys? Basically, the demon said, we're not going to listen to you. But there are also, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets who perform or try to perform great signs and miracles. Remember the crazy guys in Egypt who were magicians? And they were able to imitate some of those earlier plagues that were given through Moses and Aaron in Egypt. Don't ask me exactly how they did it, but they seemed to do it. Later on, they couldn't do it. But for a while, it was pretty tricky. They were able to put on a pretty good show. So, the coming of the lawless one at the end of the age is by the activity of Satan, and there will be all power and false signs and wonders. There are those who are fakes, who pretend to be believers, or even pretend to be famous apostles, or prophets, or miracle workers. And they put on a pretty good show. The only problem is, it's only a show. We don't need to simply say that we are Christians. We need to believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And how do we show that we have true faith? We saw it in our catechism question about repentance. We need to also turn from our sins and make our lives committed to Christ as a life of obedience. Now, that does not mean that we are perfect. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. But by beginning by faith and trusting in Christ, that's one of the first things we do to obey the gospel, is believe in the Lord Jesus in our hearts. 
That's the first fruits of that which is coming in our lives. And then true believers begin to live differently. Sometimes you find testimonies of believers who became Christians and suddenly some of those old sinful habits stop suddenly or perhaps not so suddenly or eventually God gives them victory over those sins that once so easily beset them. We realize that the word lawbreaker or workers of lawlessness means somebody who is consistently, persistently, always really serving themselves or doing those things that are evil because of false motives or secret sins. In our daily lives, we do things others cannot see. But remember, God always sees us. He knows what we are doing. And he calls us to repentance as well as to faith. He will say on that day to those who are not believers, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And it comes actually from Psalm 6, verse 8, which says the same thing. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. True repentance leads to a godly life, not perfect, but increasingly in a sanctified way, learning to love and serve the Lord more and more. Whereas unbelievers ultimately are going from bad to worse. Christians are growing in their faith, in their life, in their love, in their hope, in their obedience. We should not say as Christians, I am confessing Christ as Savior. Someday I will get around to serving him as Lord. Now there are some Christians that actually believe that. They say, well, first we believed as Christ in Christ as Savior, and sometime later, closer to when I might die, when I've had my fun, I will say, all right, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I have news for you. If he's your Savior, then he is your Lord. If he has come to grant deliverance from sin, he comes to deliver you from the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin in your life. So you're no longer a helpless victim. You're an agent of holiness and righteousness. You don't wait to obey Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say, on occasion, I have been stopped by a policeman on the road. It happened one time not too long ago as I was going up to Cookville, and there are some speed traps up there that I finally learned to avoid by slowing down. Well, I was coming out of McDonald's, I think, and heading home or something like that, and suddenly the dreaded blue and red flashing lights appeared in my rearview mirror, and there the policeman pulled me over, and he said, do you know why I have stopped you? Now, they always ask that question, because you might just tell them, (laughs) save some trouble. He says, I clocked you at, and he told me whatever it was over the speed limit. I don't know why he had mercy on me that day, but he did. But the first thing he told me was, let me see your license and registration right now. Do you think it would have been a good idea for me to say, officer, I will give you my license and registration when I am good and ready? I would have gotten a ticket, I guarantee you, for sure. Why? Because I wasn't listening to the policeman. Because he's in charge. He has a badge. He has a right. He has a title. He has authority. 
Now, Jesus, of course, has already saved us and forgiven us of our sins. How much more the Lord who has loved you and given himself up for you, you say, Lord, when I get around to it, I will listen to what you have to say. Do you think Jesus is pleased by some disciple who says, I'll eventually forgive, be forgiven? I'll be, I'll be forgiven now, but I'll eventually obey you. Now remember, commitment to Christ is by his grace. We already read the catechism questions. Faith and repentance are saving graces. They come to us by the Holy Spirit. But those graces also involve us exercising faith and exercising repentance. Without that, we call it cheap grace. God comes to deliver you, and then you say, thanks a lot, and you go your own way. That's not the way it works. And unbelievers can see that. That's why so many of them say, well, those Christians over there, a bunch of hypocrites. A lot of times they really don't understand that Christians still struggle with sin, and they're using it as a convenient excuse not to go to church or think about the Lord, but sometimes they're right. Sometimes they don't see any difference in a supposedly Christian life. Because of the great price that was paid, we have been bought with a price. What does the Bible say? If you are bought with a price, you are to glorify God in your bodies. You belong to the Lord. That's it. You're bought and paid for. You're going to heaven, not hell. Your sins have been washed away because Christ died instead of you. Isn't that amazing? And you go, well, it's sort of amazing. No, you don't. You say, it's incredible. What am I going to do to show the Lord how much I love him if he has loved me so? We love because he first loved us. We obey him because he has obeyed his father and laid down his life for us. And we must respond. The problem is that Christians, if they know what it means to be a Christian, are answering this question. Are you ready to be changed? It's easy to say you're ready ready to be forgiven. But are you ready to be changed? Are you ready to stop judging others by your own standards? Are you ready to learn to love your enemies? How is that possible? Did you know that's actually possible? Because God in Christ loved us while we were still enemies of him. So we say we're going to be like our Savior while we see people around us that don't particularly like us or call us names or make fun of us. We pray for them. It's not our first instinct. But by the grace of God, we think, why has God loved me so when I hated him at one time? You probably heard the name nominal Christian. Up north, if you meet someone and you want to know more about them, you might say, do you go to church? It's an easy opening. And then they'll say, half the time at least, no, I don't. In the south, you probably know, you don't ask, do you go to church? You ask, where do you go to church? Because everybody goes to church, it seems like. Not absolutely everybody. But most people do, and they even if they don't go, they say, oh, I belong to such and such, even though they never show up. Because, <laughs> you know, it's part of being a good citizen in the South. I'm not judging the South. There's a certain wonder, in a way, about how many people know about the Bible or know about Christ, but it's more than that that we need to actually trust him and follow him. 
A nominal Christian means you are a Christian in name only. You might be baptized even, but you don't want to be disciplined when the elders find a problem in your life or a correction by the Lord in his providence. You might participate in communion and the Lord's table, but you're not really committed to forgiving one another. You might believe that you are forgiven of your sins even though you never confess them. Well, I'm sure God will understand. You've got to tell God what you think about yourself. That's not easy. Lord, I have to admit I have failed again. Is that easy? You may be a Christian for a long time and have to say that every day in some way or other. Grace without discipleship. That means saying we are a Christian but not following Jesus. If anyone must, wants to be my disciple, what does Jesus say? He must take up, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow Jesus. Otherwise, you're not his disciple. As much as you might want to be forgiven or think you're his disciple. Grace without discipleship is not really grace because it results in discipleship. Grace without the cross without confession of sin, without leaning upon Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, without showing a difference in your life. How important is this test, isn't it? Isn't it very important? Because, of course, otherwise, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, he might say, I never knew you. Now, I hate to have to say that because that's a warning. We're not there yet. You want to avoid that reality which is going to be true in some people. And that, of course, is what hell is. Being sent away from God and the Savior and his people forever. Notice he doesn't say, he will say, I don't know you, but I never knew you. And it doesn't just mean I don't recognize you, which we say I don't know you. But the word know in the Bible means to love, even involves choice, selection, Election. I never loved you. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how hard that would be. Let me just give you a human example. You come home from work, and your wife looks at you with loathing and says, Get out of here. You come to work, and all of your coworkers shun you and avoid you, and the boss says, You're fired. Out on the street with you. And then you go to your friends at the restaurant or where you hang out and none of your friends speak to you. Nobody likes you. Everybody looks at you with disdain. Imagine that for all eternity, God and godly men are strangers to you and all the worse when you thought you were one of them, thought you knew them. Now, I give you this very stern warning, and some of you may be wondering, please don't talk about this anymore. But I give you the warning because it's not too late. Even now. Even now. There is room, of course, on the one hand, for sanctification. Some of you may looking into your hearts and lives and say, boy, I've failed so many ways, and I have too. Does that mean we're not believers? No. If we trust in Christ, are learning to obey him, yes, we are being sanctified. Think of Peter who denied Christ three times. That doesn't look like much of a believer, does it? Was Peter a believer? Yes, he was. But only because Christ prayed for him 
that he might not fall away. Even at the end of his life, or toward the end of Jesus' life, I should say, Jesus looks at Peter from across the courtyard, and Peter remembers what he did against the Savior, and he laughed? No, he wept. The Lord knows what I just did, and I weep over it. You may know Christ now, and you may show that you know him by displaying the fruits of repentance, which we talked about in the Catechism today, which says we admit our sin. And then we seek to turn away from it and do what he says. In 1 John 3, we start with belief, and then love, and then keeping his commandments. We start with faith. We don't start with fear. We start with faith. And we continue with love, not hatred, but Knowing that God has loved us, we love him, and then we say, Now, how can I serve you, Lord? I want to keep your commandments. Peter wept bitterly over our sin, and we should do the same. Secondly, and more briefly, the test of your foundation. The illustration is building a house upon the sand or the rock. Now, around here, we've got a lot of sand. Out in California, they've got both sand and rock and clay. Back last fall, they had an atmospheric river in California. Some of you may have heard of it. Storm after storm after storm. There was a severe drought in California. Now all the reservoirs are full. Why? Because there have been multitude of rainstorms, and you better have your house in order. You better have your house built upon a rock. You better have your roof repaired, because it's a deluge. It's a flood that could wash you away. In fact, as you probably know, many times in Southern California, they build their houses up on these cliffs. And sometimes on these cliffs, there's a layer of clay. And when the rain comes, and sometimes you see these pictures, the whole multi-million dollar house slides on down into the ocean. That's the end of that house. Why? Because it was built so close to the ocean, so close to the edge of the cliff, on that clay instead of rock, that as much money and time and energy they might have put into buying and building that house, it's all for nothing. And that's, of course, Jesus' point. If you spend your whole life building your life, but you don't build it upon Christ, it's going to be washed away in the deluge of the judgment of God. So you build your house upon the rock. How many of you have heard of the Leaning Tower of Pisa? It's a tower in Italy. And it leans, right? Have you seen it? It's famous for leaning. It goes like that. They built it straight. They didn't start out by saying, I want to build a leaning tower of Pisa. No, I want to build a straight tower of Pisa. The problem is it was not a good foundation. And it's been leaning. Now, I think they've shorted up. I don't know what they've got under there. Maybe some props or some something to hold it up. And they, maybe they've injected concrete. I don't know what they've done. I think they've stopped it from leaning, but you don't want a leaning tower. You don't want a house that's easily swept away. Now, how do you make sure that your life is not going to be swept away in the judgment by building your foundation upon Jesus Christ? Some of you may know the song, the wise man built his house upon the sand. Same thing. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And that rock is Christ, right? And the rain came down and flesh came up. I mean, I know from Sunday school, if you do, 
And that's the whole point that Jesus is making here, right? He says, even a flimsy house, if it's built upon the rock, will stand. But even the strongest house will fall, and no one can lay any foundation. Second, First Corinthians says, other than that already laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is a common description in the Bible. Isaiah says, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, whoever believes in him will not perish. Or Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, and my refuge. Or Second, First Peter 1, make sure your calling and election by growing in grace even when you are tested. In this, for a little while, though you may be grieved by various trials, you rejoice, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. He knows you if you are truly his. He also knows if you are not truly his. And so you have to hear my words. And Jesus says, anyone who hears my words and does them. What's the first word that Jesus gives us to do? It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your first act of faith and obedience. This is his commandment, he says in 1 John 3. His commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he's commanded. That's, what you're, that's the foundational reality of your life. You trust in Christ and you love others because God has loved you, you love him, you love one another. By this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Well, this command to trust in him also means that we will learn to obey him. In forgiveness, we learn to serve him in gratitude. It's sometimes been said that God gives you the paddle, but by his grace, he gives you the strength to paddle it. I have a few canoes, or actually kayaks, that I use. And if I have a paddle, it's no good if I don't use it. It's going to be washed away, right? So I one time went on a 10-mile ride in the Tennessee River, and I paddled for dear life because otherwise I could be swept over to the shore or capsized or whatever, as I was one time already in Dayton, Ohio, where the wet water was really fast. I have to survive the floods of life with the paddle that God gives us, the strength to paddle it. The merit belongs to Christ, and the regeneration belongs to the Holy Spirit, and he gives you a new heart and a new desire and new strength to serve him. You can't build your own house and your own work. You build it in the grace of God with the works he's prepared beforehand that we should do. We know that Israel pursued a law of righteousness as if they could be saved by that law keeping. They pursued obedience not by faith, but as if it were by works. Be careful of this. If you're obeying the Lord by his grace, you don't get any credit for it. God gets the praise. If you're saying, well, I'm a really good person. I've found this to be so common. How do you know that you are going to heaven? People will often say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Uh Uh-uh. It's not going to cut it. Because you're not a good person to begin with and you're self-deceived. But on top of that, if you are changed, it is God who changed you. And they're not usually saying that. They're saying, I did it myself. And that's what the Jews did. They pursued obedience as if it were by works. 
So when Christ came, they said, what do we need for a Savior? We've already saved ourselves. We're already pretty good. We're already sons of Abraham. We're already following Moses. What do we need with Jesus? So they didn't understand. It is really a problem here understanding this particular warning. There are two dangers. One, we should examine others rather than self. I warned you about that at the beginning. This is not for you to use as a club over others. It is the Lord who will declare those he knows. And we only see the fruit, not the root, of a Christian's life. It's also possible to have despair to examine yourself outside of Christ and truly confess, as we all must, that we have fallen far short and we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We realize even though that's true, God has made a new beginning in our lives. He has begun to work the fruit of righteousness in you because he's planted that seed in your life. And now that seed is growing. Springtime, right? At home, some of these seeds are laid out. We're going to plant beans and corn and whatever else grows in the garden, right? It starts little. It doesn't even look alive. This little seed, we could probably eat it, and it would be gone. But this little seed, if you don't eat it, you put it in the ground, it will sprout and bear fruit, and you can have beans and corn and tomatoes or whatever, and then you have the fruit to eat. If there was no life in that seed, no fruit would come. If fruit comes, you say, there was life. God put it in you. God put that life in you, and if you are serving God at all now, it is because he has changed your life, and guess what he's not done? He's just begun. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, if you wonder whether or not you are a believer, it's never too late to trust the Lord to confess your sins, to confess even to God, I need a new heart. Ask him to plant that newness within you. If you have a sin you are cherishing, stop loving it and love God more and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this one sin and I can't seem to get rid of it. And we call those besetting sins. And Hebrews 12 says, we've got to get rid of the sins that so easily beset us. That is, things that jump on us when we aren't, aren't listening or not watching. We're not careful. Something gets us. We say, ah, I should have known this devil schemes. He always gets me right here. And then you don't care, or do you? If you care, you will confess it. And I mean explicitly say, Lord, I did this, and I should not have done it. That's what every Christian says about his whole life. But even after he's a Christian, we have to daily come before the Lord, confessing our sins, knowing that, as John says, he will be gracious enough to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there some duty neglected? Some command unheeded? Remember that Christ, your Lord, has died for you. What else do you want? And then he gives you a new heart. And then he gives you a new record. And he gives you a new life. And now everything that is old has passed away. Behold, all things are now new for you. Begin to live like it in the power of Christ alone. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we know we are to find out whether our calling and election are sure. We know it is by your grace that we can do that. It is by your grace alone that we are believers. So may we confess, as with the man 
who knew his faith and his failures. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Hear us in the same way, O Lord, and forgive us, strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.